If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we have another in our recorded lecture series from our 2019 History Weekend events. This time, the historian Thomas Penn will be speaking about his book, The Brothers York, which follows the fates of three siblings that shaped the course of the Wars of the Roses, Edward IV, Richard III and George, Duke of Clarence. Thank you very much. Um, Lovely to see you all here and lovely to be here in Winchester this very rainy morning. So, in the 15th century, England was ripped apart by civil war. Waves of violence which intermittently swept the country over a 30-year period. We have a name for these wars, of course, the Wars of the Roses. A struggle between two royal houses, the House of Lancaster, the Red Rose, against the House of York, the White Rose, for the English crown. At the Battle of Bosworth, on the 22nd of August, 1485, it was a Lancastrian, Henry Tudor, who defeated a Yorkist, Richard III, and became first king of the House of Tudor. Now, the Tudor emblem here is also a rose, the rose both red, as you can see, and white, a symbol of the Tudor ability to unite these two warring houses, bring an end to civil war, and take England into a glorious new united future. So far, so familiar. Now, this is history written by the winners, the Tudors, and we're rightly skeptical of Tudor histories of the period, but we still somehow accept their account of the wars, which is odd. Because for most of this period, only one house dominated England, and that family was not Lancaster. 
it was the House of York, whose kings ruled the country with a brief hiatus between 1461 and 1485. The White Rose. During that time, the House of York established itself as England's undisputed dynasty, authoritative, magnificent, financially stable. This was no mean feat, given the context, a period of acute political instability and civil turmoil. And all this left its mark in more than just the violence, more than just the body count. This age of mistrust, anxiety and opportunism changed the way people thought, the way they behaved, the way they viewed the world, the way they saw each other. And this mistrust seeped through the House of York. Now, what I set out to do in my book was to show how a dynasty that should have had it all, which indeed had male heirs in abundance, something their successors, the Tudors, failed to do, blew it and collapsed in on itself. At the heart of this collapse were three royal brothers, Edward IV, the king of flawed, compulsive magnificence, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, and almost 10 years his junior, and sandwiched between them, George, Duke of Clarence, a man who wanted to be king, but never was. I show how, over a period of two decades or so, this fraternal relationship went horribly, horribly wrong. It deteriorated in a barely believable sequence of rebellion, deposition, vendetta, fratricide, usurpation and regicide. Unique in English history, it was the stuff of tragedy. Now, one of the contemporary accounts of this relationship comes from a Yorkist civil servant who, the year after Bosworth, in the first year of Henry VII's reign, retires to an abbey in Lincolnshire and writes his memoirs. They're up close and personal. And this civil servant was very probably in the room when a lot of key decisions were made during Edward IV's reign. Wisely, he kept his identity secret. A comment he made about the three brothers prompted me to write this book, and it stayed with me throughout. And I quote, these three brothers possessed such surpassing talent that if they had been able to avoid conflict, their triple bond could only have been broken with the utmost difficulty. That is one of the biggest ifs in English history. Now, one of my main aims in writing this book was to dig down into this triangular relationship to work out what happened and why. And in order to do that, of course, you have to do things the thing that, as a medieval historian, is perhaps the trickiest of all. To get into the minds of your subjects, to try and psychologize them. Now, why is this tricky? Well, simply put, it's the nature and availability of the documents that remain to us. The historical record is incredibly fragmented, and it's also incredibly partial, representing a bewildering array of perspectives. You have chronicle accounts, diplomats' accounts, a few collections of letters, but from families rather lower down the political food chain, and lots and lots of administrative, legal, and government records, like this one. This is a warrant from Edward IV's reign, and it's drawn up by a member of his secretariat on his own explicit commands. And you can actually see here, this is, this is a gift. He's gifting wine to his two beloved brothers, George, Duke of Clarence, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and these are two says, tons of Gascoigne wine. It says to be taken out of our cellars. Now, a ton is a 252-gallon barrel of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it's a Christmas present. It says it's against the feast of Christmas. 
Now, even these records, however, are uneven, they're patchy, and their survival is a case of historical accident. But pieced together, these records can tell us an awful lot about our subjects. The first of whom is Edward IV. Now, Edward IV becomes head of the House of York in December 1460, aged 18, when his father, Richard, is killed by a Lancastrian army at Wakefield in Yorkshire. And Edward IV usurps the crown from the tremulous grasp of the Lancastrian king, Henry VI. Now, Henry VI, mentally ill, barely able to rule at all by this point, is one of the key reasons why England is a mess. Its politics are broken, its economy is tanking, its government is bankrupt. After Henry VI, Edward IV seems like a breath of fresh air. Six foot four, at a time when most people were a foot shorter, he was gigantic, magnetic, charismatic, a war leader. His grandson, Henry VIII, was a chip off the old block. In 1461, Edward IV wins two crucial battles that become part of the founding Yorkist myth. On a freezing February morning in the Welsh marches at Mortimer's Cross, when three suns appear in the sky, a parhelion, sunlight refracting on drifting ice crystals to create two illusory sun, suns alongside the real thing. Edward IV adopts the sunburst as his badge. He incorporates it into the Yorkist white rose. Here you can see the white rose and the sun beams radiating around it. It's the sun in splendor. Then there's Towton, the bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil in a raging blizzard on Palm, raging blizzard on Palm Sunday. Edward, massive, plate-armoured, is in the thick of the fighting. Now, Edward looks and walks and talks like a king. He does everything intensely. Fighting, government. Here we have another example. This is monogram. In the top left-hand corner, you can see the RE, Rex Edwardus. So he signs these documents that his secretariat draws up. He does a lot of this. Deal-making as well. He's a king who trades, who speculates to accumulate. One chronicler is a bit sniffy about this, describing him as behaving like a merchant, which is obviously not a good thing. And he parties as well. The closer you get to Edward, says one contemporary, the lovelier he seems. And nobody believes in his own effect quite as much as Edward IV himself. His motto is confort et liesse, French for comfort and joy. But there's something darker at play with Edward. Most of what he does is very calculated, and that includes the way he exposes himself to his courtiers and petitioners, whether raising huge quantities of credit from Italian bankers, or as I say, working out the impact of his own physical presence on the people that want things from him. Now, historians have often struggled to reconcile Edward's excesses and contradictions. He's an excessive king in all ways. He eats and drinks far too much. He's clearly a functioning alcoholic from an early age something that horrifies the doctors who stand next to him at table trying to moderate his diet unsuccessfully. His rapacious womanizing and his violent addiction to pleasure, violent, by the way, is a word that contemporaries use, not me, appall, appall the people around him. And these are people who otherwise admire him as a king. There is a deeply rooted narcissism fueling this compulsive behavior. It would displace the typical traits of a narcissist, a marked lack of empathy, thin-skinned inability to accept criticism, a constant desire for affirmation, and an indecision that manifests itself at crucial moments. At times, it seems, 
he just goes off-piste, probably on an alcoholic bender. He expects his companions to keep up. Now, there's one fabulous account of this behaviour, in particular by a Milanese ambassador who visited England in 1461, not long after Edward's coronation. After arriving at court, he describes how he's corralled into a royal hunting party that goes on for weeks up the Thames Valley, hunting and drinking by day, and what the ambassador diplomatically calls festivities of ladies by night. <laughs> and one of Edward's own warrants shows this behaviour, because this here is a, it's a warrant, again, and this is, this is pretty characteristic of Edward, for the deployment of one of these tons of wine. And what it is, it says, you can't really see it here, unfortunately, but it says he wants a ton, a gain of good Gascon wine, and he wants them, he wants these, these tons stationed at various hunting lodges along the route, ready for our drinking. You wouldn't want to be in front of Edward's crossbow, would you, when he was trying to kill his deer? After a while, this ambassador, anyway, this Milanese ambassador, who's, who's on this hunting party, he just wants it to stop. Apart from anything else, he has a horrible attack of gout, and he tries to leave, but Edward won't let him. So the ambassador has to stay, hungover, racked with indigestion, and God knows what else. The message is, you have to do what Edward wants, and woe betide you if you don't. As Edward settles into kingship, he doesn't slow down. His counsellors, reasoning that he needs to put his bachelor days behind him and get married, Edward is now in his early 20s, broker a marriage with the daughter of the King of France, Louis XI. Now, France is the European superpower of its day, and an alliance with Louis, this man here, appearances are deceptive. This man is a very, very clever king. He wasn't known as the Spider King for nothing. Now, an alliance with him is the best prospect for the House of York. <clears throat> so, in late summer 1464, a great council is summoned to Reading, <clears throat> where Edward is to be presented with this plan. He turns up and he says something for which almost everybody in the room is unprepared. I'm already married. Now, marriage is one of the most important part, uh, cards a king can play. And Edward, ignoring the advice of all his counsellors, has married instead for love or lust. He plays his card on an English commoner. And you will all know this name, Elizabeth Woodville. There she is. Now, people are shocked by what Edward does. But it's not, by and large, because Elizabeth is a commoner or the widow of a Lancastrian knight with her own kids, which is bad enough. It's because he ignores the advice of his own counsellors. The marriage changes the whole ecosystem of Edward's court and government, from foreign policy to the dishing out of favour in the marriage market. Indeed, it changes the future of the Yorkist dynasty, which from now on, should Edward and Elizabeth have male heirs, which they do, is set on a different course. This upsets two men in particular. One is Richard, Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, who's the cousin and mentor to Edward and his two brothers, who's played a crucial role in putting Edward on the throne. The other is Edward's teenage brother, and still, for the moment, his heir, George, Duke of Clarence. So, at this point, we need to rewind three years to when Edward had just become king. His closest male relatives, his two brothers, are his heirs. Clarence is 11, Richard is 8. 
Both boys have known little but political turbulence, and the, their formative experiences include the disaster at Loveford Bridge in 1459, when the Yorkist army fled overnight without firing a shot, leaving them with their mother Cecily, who was abused by Lancastrian troops, and then, two years later, being sent into exile, again by their mother, to the Low Countries to escape a vengeful Lancastrian army marching on London. So adversity has brought these three brothers together. The sense of Yorkist family unity is very, very strong. Edward loves his brothers, and he creates them royal dukes. George, Duke of Clarence, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. And because they were not born to have any livelihood, as one chronicler says, this means that they have little inherited land of their own, which is something that is very important. Edward, who's flush with the confiscated wealth of his Lancastrian opponents, rewards them accordingly. Now, the endowment he gives Clarence transforms him instantly into one of the greatest noblemen in England. Richard's landed settlement, though, is more of a ragbag, which is unsurprising, because given his age, his position in the pecking order, and the fact that Edward has many more supporters to, re to reward. Now, Edward is hardly the first king to prioritise his own family, but he is very specific about his rationale for doing so. Indeed, he lays it out in a document later in his reign. The might of the land, he says, should rest in the great lords, but power should especially be concentrated in the hands of his own family, the king's blood. The greater the proportion of royal blood in your veins, the more you should, of right, be honoured and enhanced of right and power. That of right is very, very significant as far as Clarence and Richard are concerned. So, Edward builds his brothers up, but there's a quid pro quo. For with every grant, he intends to bind them more tightly to him, tied not only by the bonds of nature or blood, but by the bonds of so great benefit, the benefit or wealth that Edward has bestowed upon them. This is a way not just of underscoring their familial closeness, but the servitude that lies at the heart of this relationship. Edward will envelop George and Richard in his smothering love, but he expects their unconditional loyalty in return. Edward is king, and his brothers had better not forget it, because what the king gives, the king can take away. So in the first years of Edward's reign, Clarence grows up fast. He's sharp with a biting wit. He's also very indiscreet. He possesses the overdeveloped sense of honour and self-entitlement, which is completely characteristic of the landed classes of the age. He's also hungry for power, and he's pricklingly sensitive about it, in part because he knows quite how precarious the foundations of this power are. He's grabby, and he's self-aggrandizing, and Edward indulges him, up to a point. That point is reached in the months following Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. One thing that the marriage does is to bring all Edward, Elizabeth, sorry, upwardly mobile family to court, and there are lots of them. Extraordinary for an age in which death in childhood was remarkably common. Only one of her 13 siblings had died. This is an incredible statistic. Now, the rest set about marrying into the Yorkist establishment, aided and abetted by Elizabeth's parents, both of whom become exceptionally influential with Edward. There's another crucial factor. For while Elizabeth's father is a commoner, her mother isn't. She's a great Burgundian aristocrat. Now, the Woodvilles, as I found, lay astonishing emphasis on this lineage. In fact, if you look at the way that their coat of arms is drawn up, five out of six panels emphasize the Burgundian line. And in so doing, what happens is that they force a pivot in Edward's foreign policy, away from France and Louis XI, and towards Louis's hated neighbors, the Dukes of Burgundy, rulers of the Low Countries, 
Northern Europe's industrial and financial powerhouse, dripping with culture, chivalry, fine art, and powered by the Medici Bank, including this man, Tommaso Portinari. And incidentally, the London branch of the Medici Bank is Edward's largest creditor. It eventually goes bust when Edward fails to repay his debts, and it creates the implosion of the London branch, creates a feedback loop which goes all the way through Bruges and back to Florence, where the Medici Bank starts to implode. So it all happens in Yorkist England. Now, all this enrages Edward's older cousin, Richard Earl of Warwick, who's been trying to engineer a treaty with France, as we found, and more broadly realises that he's losing his influence with Edward. And it also vexes Clarence, who is beginning to feel the pressure on his recently acquired power and wealth, both from Yorkist courtiers, who are eyeing that, eyeing that wealth up, and Lancastrians, who want their lands back. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, Clarence wants security, and he seeks it in a marriage of his own. Marrying a rich heiress is a way of acquiring hereditary wealth, the kind of wealth, the kind of landed wealth that you can pass on to your sons and daughters in perpetuity, not the kind of wealth that's subject to the whims of royal favour. Clarence has his eye on Isabel Neville, who is the older daughter of the Earl of Warwick. Warwick is very keen for the match to go ahead, but Edward says no. He refuses to let it happen. And when you think of a time when everybody at court is getting married, Edward's married who he wants, all the Woodville's being married off, but Clarence is not allowed to marry. And this is where the fraternal cracks start to open. Clarence falls increasingly under the influence of Richard Earl of Warwick, who, estranged from Edward himself, sees Clarence as his new project. Now, we have to remember that Clarence at this point is still in his teens. He's impressionable, with an instinct for disobedience that one chronicler sums up nicely. Clarence, he says, has a mind too conscious of a daring deed. And those deeds come thick and fast in a period between 1469 and 1471. What happens next leaves everybody dumbfounded. One Milanese ambassador rubbing his eyes says that events in England are so crazy that I seem to be dreaming as I write of them. They are crazy in large part because this is becoming a York on York conflict. Clarence marries Warwick's daughter against his brother's wishes. They lead an insurgent army against Edward, killing various of his favorites, including Elizabeth Woodville's father. Clarence and Warwick then flee abroad to France, link up with exiled Lancastrians, their sworn enemies, remember, and return with the French-backed Lancastrian army. The hapless Henry VI is restored to the throne. Edward flees abroad to the Low Countries. Clarence discovers that life in a Lancastrian government isn't surprise, surprise, what he thought it would be. Edward, with Burgundian backing, returns six months later, makes up with Clarence, and together with Richard, the youngest brother who is now 18, they massacre the Lancastrians at two battles, Barnet, where Warwick is killed, and at Tewkesbury, where the House of Lancaster is all but exterminated. And we can see one of the Lancastrian generals, um, the Duke of Somerset, having his head chopped off, and Edward standing there, the crowd looking on, very happy. 
So the three brothers ride triumphantly into London, shoulder to shoulder, the visible symbol of the House of York's newfound unity, the source of its power. The House of York now is the only game in town. Edward, with Henry VI, swiftly murdered the undisputed King of England. One poet, triumphantly proclaiming unity between the Yorkist brothers, states, the knot was knit again. Now, at this point, I want to pause, step away from this narrative, pick up a little bit on what I was speaking about earlier. My aim in this book was to get inside the minds, behind the eyes of these brothers, if you like, to try to make them fully realized characters. But how, with such a fragmentary, uneven, and often unreliable historical record, do you begin to do this? Well, first, you have to proceed with extreme caution. You have to stick to these archival sources like glue, because otherwise your hypothesizing becomes something different. It starts to look a bit like fiction. With these sources, I always have a few rules of thumb. First, approach with an open mind, which, when you're looking for evidence to support your hypotheses, can sometimes be hard and read very, very closely. It's a bit like panning for gold. You have to be alert to the merest glint of precious metal. Many royal administrative records are formulaic, but within them, there's often surprisingly personal language. So here's an example of what I mean. This is a warrant from Edward to his chancellor, Warwick's brother, George Neville, at a time when relationships between Edward and Warwick's family, including this man, um, are turning sour. Edward suspects, rightly as it turns out, that George Neville is trying to undermine relations with Burgundy by failing to grant the, a Burgundian embassy a, a safe, safe conduct to come to England. And you can see from, well, you can't see, but I'll tell you. You can see from the language that Edward's irate, what happens is he, he reminds Neville that he was present at the meeting when this safe conduct was agreed. He says in line four, he says, you being here, and he said, you should remember this, says, you being present. He says it again. You can see, you can hear Edward speaking to his secretary, saying, this is what I want you to write down. And this is a kind of, a sort of royal finger jab in Neville's direction. He doesn't expect to have to ask twice for the royal will to be done, and he doesn't like doing it. And so this is actually a follow-up warrant to the one he sent Neville. And he's saying this, you being here, you being present, you know what you were supposed to have done. You didn't do it. I'm reminding you again. Now, within a year, Edward removes Neville from office. Takes away, George Neville is a man who's been one of the architects of the orchestra. Edward sends a deputation along, along to his London house, York House, removes Great Seal, the uh, Chancellor's symbol of office. That's it. Neville's out of favour. So then, when you found these kinds of, this kind of evidence, there's the other part. Now, as the late, great E.H. Carr put it, facts have to be processed by the historian before the historian can make use of them. In other words, these, these facts, these things you discover, have to be interrogated. They have to be stress-tested. And in all this, it's crucial to embrace the perspective of these documents, their viewpoint, their bias, their humanity, in all its contradictory complexity. I tried to hold all this in play while layering up evidence from different kinds of documents and sources. I thought of it a bit like applying washes to a canvas. And what often happens when you do this, when you combine these different sources, is that patterns of behavior individual behavior begin to emerge. So for instance, Edward's spasm of anger in this document is mirrored in a letter written by an associate of the Norfolk gentleman, gentleman John Paston, telling him to come to court very fast in response to Edward's summons, or Edward will kill him. And he adds, the king means what he says. Later in Edward's reign, one chronicler close to power notes how Edward rules with complete impunity. He is feared by all his subjects. When one errant subject finally 
responds to Edward's summons to court after dragging his feet. He turns up, kneels at the king's feet, and Edward simply removes his gaze from the man in front of the assembled court and courtiers. He just goes like this. And that is enough for the entire court to turn its back on this petitioner. He wanders out, friendless, alone, out of favour. That's the kind of power that Edward has. So you put all this together with Edward's compulsive habits, the unpredictability that people saw in him. One diplomat calls him a tavern bush, an ensign swinging in the wind, kind of flip-flopper. Then you add that here's a man who finds it very difficult to accept criticism. A group of influential Burgundian knights who know him conclude that Edward is fundamentally insecure, that he needs constant reassurance and soothing, and you have an explosive combination. A king, for example, who is quite prepared to kill his own brother. As I said just now, it's important to keep an open mind because human beings, as we know, are unpredictable, they're contrary and inconveniently for historians who often like their characters to fit the consistent models they've constructed for them, rarely models of rational behavior, especially in situations of extreme stress. One academic article that always springs to mind in this regard, by, it must be said, an excellent historian, is entitled Edward IV, Playboy, Playboy sorry, or Politician, to which I'd answer both and more. By the same token, we have to understand that when people, people often act for a complex of reasons, ego trip, power grab, public self-interest, which, messily enough, aren't always mutually exclusive. All of which brings us to the younger brother, youngest brother, rather, Richard. There he is. One of the key reasons I wrote this book was to put the extreme events of Richard's usurpation, and I call it that with reason, and brief calamitous reign in context. In other words, to try and move beyond the twin stereotypes that still dominate so much debate on him, and to give a sense of the world out of which he emerged and which formed him, to try and understand why he acted like he did. As I considered Richard in his formative years, it becomes very clear to me that he was a boy who is subject to all the pressures that Clarence is under as well. He's part of a family that acquires exceptional wealth and power in conditions of extreme political instability. And he, like his older brothers, has to find a way to hang on to it and to try to, too, to take advantage of this extraordinary hand that he's been dealt. But Richard grows up in Clarence's shadow. There's a three-year age gap, which, of course, when you're young, is very significant. And, of course, Clarence is heir to the throne. Clarence dominates Richard. In one instance, he forces Edward to cancel... Well, actually, he does this quite a lot. But in one instance, he forces Edward to cancel a grant that the king has given to Richard and to give it to him instead. And this, actually, is the earldom of Richmond, which Edward has taken away from one Henry Tudor. Richard learns to be quiet, to bide his time, until, that is, he reaches his late teens, and the tumultuous events of Warwick and Clarence's rebellion give him a fresh opportunity to stake his claim. Richard responds differently from Clarence to these pressures. He craves order, security, clarity. And he finds these things in abstract ideals, chivalry, justice, piety, loyalty. He finds these things in particular in the books that he reads and owns. Richard believes in these ideals very strongly, and more than most, he uses them to understand and to try to shape the messy reality around him. You can see this early on in one of his books about a knight called Epomodon, the greatest knight in all the world. And this is a page from Richard's manuscript of Epomodon. And at the bottom, here, that's better, 
you can see his signature, our Gloucester, and his then motto, Ton le désiré, which in French is French for I have wanted it so much. He wants to be like this virtuous knight. He wants to be just like Epomedon, full of passionate intensity. And in the events of the late 1460s, Richard gets his chance. He stays resolutely loyal to Edward, fleeing into exile with him. After Barnet and Tewkesbury, Richard is the one brother singled out by chroniclers because he fights like a demon. This is all the more remarkable given the discrepancy between his unremarkable physique, and we know now the spinal condition, scoliosis, that had probably started to plague him in his late teens. Time and again, contemporaries, even his enemies, note the contrast between Richard's very slender physique and his great heart. This comment occurs time and again. After the Battle of Tewkesbury, a poet compliments him. He writes, I suppose he's the same as Clarks of Red. In other words, he's become the kind of knight that people read about in books, including him. He's become Epomedon, effectively. For Richard, a boy who wants to emulate his chivalric heroes, there is no higher compliment. Now, that newly bound fraternal knot I talked about in 1471, the knot being knit again, it quickly unravels. And it does so because Richard's loyalty to Edward has effectively moved him ahead of Clarence in the queue for royal favour. Although Clarence is ostensibly reconciled with his brothers, Edward mistrusts him, and the Yorkist establishment does as well. Now, prominent among the Yorkist establishment, as, as you'll remember, the Queen's family, the Woodvilles, the big extended family who Clarence targeted in the rebellion of 1469, they don't forget what Clarence has done, and they hate him. The bone of contention between the two younger brothers are the vast estates of Richard, Earl of Warwick, who was killed at Barnet. Now, Clarence has married Isabel, the older daughter, in defiance of Edward's wishes, hoping to access these lands. And Richard, who Edward indulges as he never did Clarence, lets him marry Anne, Warwick's younger daughter. You can see here, this is Richard, Earl of Warwick, and Anne, Countess of Warwick's wife, and you can see the family tree. Here on the, one, on, on, on the left is Richard, marrying Anne Neville and their son, Edward. And George, Duke of Clarence there, marrying Isabel and his son and daughter, surviving son and daughter. The early 1470s see a bruising conflict between Clarence and Richard over these estates that threatens to destabilize the whole country. Edward threatens, claims rather, to be an impartial arbiter between the two, but he's not really. He allows Richard to get away with an awful lot, including abduction, intimidation, perversion of justice. And at the same time, Edward puts enormous pressure on Clarence's networks of power and influence. Clarence, for his part, is convinced that Edward is slowly trying to destroy him, or, in his horribly vivid phrase, to consume him as a candle consumes in burning, to snuff him out. I found writing about these claustrophobic years and the turning inward of this three-way fraternal relationship especially rewarding and quite terrifying, I have to say. It's a time when the Yorkist dynasty is outwardly magnificent. The lean years are over, and Edward is spending and spending on architecture, luxuries, books. Here's one of them, a page from one of the great Burgundian manuscripts that Edward imports and has illuminated with his own, you can see there, the white rose down the margins. And of course, he spends a lot of money, too, on booze and food. But the darkness is palpable here. Edward is becoming a bit like the old Henry VIII would become. Fat, controlling, paranoid, depressed, tyrannical, and all these character traits I mentioned above become exaggerated. And here he is. He doesn't look like charming young Edward anymore. This is old, fat Edward. 
and you can see many, many chins here. Edward's not even 40 yet. Looks a bit of a mess. Clarence, meanwhile, is desperately struggling to assert himself and just can't shake off the toxic clouds of conspiracy that hang around him. Richard, on the other hand, is the king's loyal right-hand man. Hard, uncompromising, he has Edward's ear. Now, in 1478, the unthinkable happens. Edward, backed by the entire Yorkist establishment, including Richard, accuses and condemns Clarence for treason. In a rigged trial, he has him murdered. His drowning in one of those tons of wine, one of those 252-gallon barrels of wine, sweet white wine, is typical of Edward's bad taste jokes and nod very probably to Clarence's alcoholism. Five years later, in 1483, Edward dies aged 40, a victim, as you can see, of his own excess. But for all Edward's faults, he has been a centripetal figure in English politics. He's kept it all together. And his son and heir now is 12. He's a minor. He can't govern. After Edward dies, there's an atmosphere of palpable anxiety and uncertainty as the constituent parts of his rule begin to fall apart and start to congeal into discrete power blocks. The Queen's blood, for example, start to become another family instead. They start to be referred to as the Woodvilles. And this is where Richard makes his move, triggering the extraordinary sequence of events that see him usurp power twice in 11 and a half weeks, first as protector to his late brother's young heir, then as king in his own right, while ridding himself of his political enemies. As one appalled supporter of Edward IV later put it, what Richard does is to the extreme detriment of the kingdom and the utter subversion of his own house, the ultimate destruction of the House of York. Richard, of course, didn't see it that way. Now, one of the most oft-posed questions about Richard is this. How can a man so obviously loyal to his late brother prove so incredibly disloyal after his brother's death? Such a question presupposes a profound transformation in character, Richard shifting from a dutiful Dr. Jekyll to a usurping Mr. Hyde. But in fact, as I found, there's little substantive change. What there is, is a change in intensity. These traits, as with Edward, become exaggerated. All those characteristics in Richard, all those externalities that are found in him as Duke of Gloucester come into full focus in his bid for the throne. The idealism, the loyalty, the tendency to view the world in black and white, the sense fostered in him by Edward that he is due exceptional wealth and power of right because of his royal blood, the exceptional leeway shown him by Edward, and of course the combination of extreme vulnerability, precariousness and possibility engendered by the age. In a sense, therefore, Richard's reign isn't an anomaly. Rather, there's an, ine an inevitability to it. It's the logical and the ghastly outcome of the previous quarter century of instability and civil conflict. Now, Richard strongly believes that he knows what it takes to be an ideal king. But his binary view of the world, one in which he is on the side of virtue, as his proclamations say, and his enemies on the side of vice, which serves him so well on the battlefield and as his brother's right-hand man, serve him poorly as king. His ideals swiftly disintegrate on contact with reality, and Richard's response to the unpredictability and confusion of real-life events is perhaps best described as a kind of cognitive dissonance. He can't bear it, he can't understand it when things don't go as he's planned, when his vision starts to 
fragment. And you can see this in his summary executions of Hastings, Edward's former Chamberlain, who has been on his side, but who Richard believes has now turned against him, and of the Queen's brother, Anthony Woodville, and his, his associates. All these executions are done without the merest trace of legal process. And of the way, too, in which Edward's former supporters rebel against him a few months later, after he gains the throne, he offers them no way back until it's too late, which may be uncompromising, but it's also politically obtuse. So it's in large part this inflexibility that causes his downfall at Bosworth, at the hands of a faction comprising renegade Yorkists. In the absence of Edward's, Edward IV's heirs, the princes, missing, presumed dead, they choose as their leader a fugitive Lancastrian with the barest smattering of royal blood, Henry Tudor. Now, apart from anything else, that they should turn to such a man speaks volumes about how they view Richard, and not in a good way. What about the princes? Now, that's for another time, but I want to leave you with some... Yeah, I'm not going there. But some food for thought. It's a document dated September 1484. Richard has been on the throne for about 15 months. And the princes have long since disappeared. <coughs> Despite his uncompromising efforts, Richard has failed to stamp out rebellion, which it instead has transmuted into a slow-burning conspiracy. He's lost his only son and heir, he's struggling to raise finance, and he's on edge. And he signs this warrant, which I recently came across in the National Archives. It's for a pension payable to the widow and son of a recently deceased royal servant, Miles Forrest, his wardrobe keeper in Barnard's Castle in County Durham. Now, we know about Miles Forrest in part because of Thomas More. Yes, Thomas More, who identified him as one of the murderers in the Princes in the Tower, of the Princes in the Tower. The 19th century Clements Markham knew about this payment, of which there's a summary elsewhere in Richard's accounts, not this document in particular. But he dismissed the payment out of hand. It was, he said, simply in recognition of Forrest's long service. But this is not a payment for long service. Cash pensions like this, for a annual salary, which is payable to his wife and son, and son as long as, they, as, long as they live, are not usual. I've been through all these and similar warrants for Richard's reign and Edward's, and I haven't unearthed anything comparable. Unsurprisingly, really, because kings would quickly find themselves bankrupt if they started shelling out pensions like this. They generally have enough problems paying their servants' wages when they're alive. And this document explicitly says the payment is not for long service. Now, when you generally kings reward their servants for service, they say it, for good service that he hath done or intend to do. But there's a different formula that they use here. And it's up the top, it's in the first line, it says, for diverse causes and considerations, us moving. What does this mean? It's a formula, another of those official formulas, and it's a formula that kings use all the time when referring to confidential and secret business that is carried out on their behalf. Now, it's impossible to say for sure what Miles Forrest had done for Richard, but it merited an exceptional royal response. And what this shows us is the devil in the detail. It shows us the power of these small, apparently mundane government documents. This is the stuff of history, and it's what, what makes doing what I do so exciting, so constantly surprising, and so richly rewarding. Thank you very much. That was Thomas Penn, The Brothers York, An English Tragedy, 
is out now, published by Alan Lane. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the French Revolution. (laughs) 